We have, as we've been working our way together through the book of Genesis from time to time, taken some time to talk about the priorities that Moses has, or I should perhaps say the priorities that the Holy Spirit has uh, in putting together this book. And we've made note of the fact of how very strange it is, given the limitations of space that uh, included in the story is the account of Abraham buying a burial plot for his wife. Well, we come now uh, to Genesis chapter 25, which is the halfway point uh, through the book of Genesis. And in this chapter, it begins with, uh, well, it doesn't begin with, but uh, it, it recounts Abraham's uh, additional wife, Keturah, and the children uh, that she bore to him and the grandchildren. Uh and then it mentions, of course, that Abraham passed away. He lived to be 175 years old, and he eventually was buried in the same plot by Ishmael and Isaac, the same plot uh, that contained Sarah. But then, about halfway through this chapter, we get to the account of the birth of Esau and Jacob. And not just that, but then soon after that, we get to the account of Esau selling his birthright to Jacob. Now, I mention all that because it just does seem a little uh, strange that after the time was taken to tell about this burial plot, uh, there seems to be an awful lot uh, of significance going on in this chapter crammed into uh, a very, very short space. Uh, part of that is the uh, ongoing blessing that God had for Abraham, that his, uh, God's promise to Abraham, that Abraham would be a blessing to many nations and that his descendants would be like the sand of the sea, uh, is carried through, principally through Isaac. Uh, and then we're going to see what happens between Isaac's two sons, uh, but not exclusively. And so this uh, Keturah, this latter-day wife, and the children that she bears, and this is part of the fulfillment of that process. I've got to confess, it sort of reminds me uh, of the end of the book of Job, that Job, after all the hardship uh, that he was uh, put through, uh, was blessed again with a loving wife and with many children and great prosperity. All the things that he had lost, he received even more uh, blessing, such that the book of Job says in Job 42, 12, uh, now the latter days were better than the former days, which uh, uh, verse is that verse that I cite when on those rare occasions when someone asks me to sign one of my books or it's also on the license plate of my car, Job 4212. Uh, now the latter days were greater or better than the former days. Well, Abraham loses uh, Sarah, but he continues to be blessed and has many of these children and lives to this ripe old age. Then he's buried with Sarah, and the story then proceeds to the account of the birth of Jacob and Esau. Now, uh, 
This is another place where it's important for us to remember that God is active in space and time, that this is not just uh, a random event. It's not like these twins were a surprise to God or that God peered down the corridor of time and saw that they would become Uh, that they would be born. But it's not just that they were born. It's not just that they're twins, but it's the way that they would come forth. Beginning in verse 22, uh, uh, let's actually, we'll start in verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Once again, the future is in danger. He's got a barren wife and the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Now, that's got to be a surprise. I mean, there's lots of surprises. One, we have this woman who's been barren for some time. Now, not just uh, expecting, but expecting twins. Uh, the, the second surprise is that these twins are not getting along very well, and they're not playing uh, nicely in their mother's womb. Then we get this uh, announcement when uh, she inquires of the Lord, and the Lord says, hey, you're, you're going to give birth to those who are going to represent two nations, and they're going to be divided, and one will be stronger than the other. Then the older will serve the younger. What's that all about? Well, I don't know if this is fair. I don't know if this is accurate, but I'm, I'm going to mention it anyway. Uh, there are lots of places and times in Scripture where uh, rightly Jesus is referred to as the firstborn. He is the firstborn of the new creation. He is the monogenes, and we're going to talk in a minute about what it means when we get to the story of the birthright to be the firstborn and how that relates to the birthright. There's, there's reality there. But there's another sense in which Jesus is not first, but second, because the Bible tells us that he's the second Adam. The first Adam failed, and he did not receive the inheritance that would have been his as the Son of God as he's described in one of the uh, genealogies in the gospel, he failed. And so it shouldn't surprise us that from time to time, God uh, practices this habit of choosing the secondborn rather than the firstborn, or even later than that, when we see David, the youngest, being chosen among all the sons of Jesse to be the king of Israel. We even see this later on in the life of Jacob himself, who, when Joseph comes and brings his two sons to Jacob to be blessed, he flops the hands between Ephraim and Manasseh so that the younger receives the greater blessing. So this is what God is up to. Now, that said, let's talk for a moment. Well, first, let's consider what actually happened during the birth. Verse 24, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her room. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. 
Isaac was 60 years old when she bore him. Wow. So here's these twins being born. First comes Esau, but right after him, holding on to Esau's heel, comes Jacob. And the promise had been made to Rebekah that the older would serve the younger. Well, we jump right from that. Uh, well, we do get this uh, uh, revelation that uh, each of the parents had a favorite, uh, that Jacob was partial uh, to, to, excuse me, that uh, Isaac was partial to Esau and that Rebecca was partial to Jacob. But then all of a sudden they're older, they're grown. And beginning in verse 29, once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Well, what is a birthright? Well, among the things that this means is simply this, that it was common practice uh, in that day, in that era, and even in our day as well, for the firstborn, usually the firstborn son, uh, to receive a double portion of the inheritance. That would be, let me do the math for you since... uh, this may not be real easy. Uh, let's say that that Abraham, excuse me, that Isaac was going to leave a uh, a legacy worth a million dollars. This doesn't mean no. Here, here's what it means, and then he has these two children. Then what you do is you take that legacy, you divide it by three, and two portions go to uh, whoever has the birthright, and one goes to the other one. So it would be. Uh, you know, 667,000 uh, to one and 337,000 to the other. That's that double portion. Now, with that came also this right, the birthright in this context would be uh, the ability to, to inherit the blessings that God has promised. That when God speaks to Abraham, and remember, in, in a very real sense, Isaac is also the second born, being born after Ishmael. But so one could argue that Ishmael should have been the one through whom the promise came, but it was not God's plan that it would go that way. So in the same way, you would expect that Esau would be the one through whom God's plan would come to pass, but God's promises it will come through uh, Jacob. Now, eventually, we're going to have a conversation about more specifically what goes on with the deception later on uh, with Jacob and the fur and the and Rebecca and all of that and. We're going to try to break that down. But for now, we're talking about something a little less than what this blessing was. This, and, and a little almost more crass that we're talking about a, a, mostly a financial transaction. I wanted to mention also that with the birthright and that double portion of the inheritance would typically come a not just the promise of the blessings, but a responsibility uh, to serve as a kind of patriarch to the clan. 
Now, understand that the Bible teaches that when a man and a woman get married, uh, they leave their father and their mother and they cling and cleave together. They are their own household unit. They are their own authorities. Uh, They're no longer children. And the husband, no matter how important and powerful his father may be or his grandfather may be, he is still the head of his house. That said... The patriarch typically would be the one that would be looked to when someone in the family was facing some kind of hardship, some kind of trouble. So that's part of what it means to carry that birthright. And that's part of the reason why you get a double portion of the inheritance. If one of your younger siblings is going to need a bailout, you go to the one who got the double portion for that bailout. So what in the world is Esau doing? Well, Esau is demonstrating a lack of concern for the future. Esau is demonstrating uh, that he is led by his appetites. And Jacob is demonstrating that he has no qualms whatsoever in taking advantage of someone else's weakness to get what he wants. What should have happened is, of course, uh, Esau should have not been overly dramatic about how hungry he was. He should have had confidence in God's provision. Uh, He should have had a willingness, if he really was that hungry, to prepare his own food. Uh, But barring that, when he failed to do that, what Jacob should have done was to say, of course, have some stew. Uh, But barring that, because Jacob says, no, you got to sell me your birthright. At that point, Esau should have said, forget that. I'm not doing that. That's crazy talk. I'll make my own stew. But none of that happened. You have one being more devious and clever and plotting and having a long-term view. The other being more ignorant and and demanding and impatient and not thinking about the future. And thus that trade happens. The birthright is given up for this bowl of stew. So what are we to learn from that? Well, as I have argued over the years, one of the ways that we're to uh, grasp and understand what scripture is telling us is to remember that it's a mirror and that we are to see ourselves in the scripture. The the R.C. Sproul Jr. principle of hermeneutics goes like this. Whenever you see someone in the Bible doing something really, really stupid, do not say to yourself, how can they be so stupid? Instead, say to yourself, how am I stupid just like them? This principle, by the way, extends well beyond stupidity. It extends to every other kind of sin uh, and extends well beyond the Bible, too. If you want to look in church history or even in your neighborhood or in your congregation. Uh, We're we're all sinners and pretty much in very much the same way. Now, that's the R.C. Sproul Jr. principle of hermeneutics, but there's a corollary to it that goes like this. If you want to know who you are in the story, you're the sinner. Just a few nights ago, I finished a four-part series on the book of Hosea, and I was telling the people that were gathered together to remember uh, this principle, that if, if you're reading the story of Hosea and Gomer, and you're coming away from that with a message that simply means, I should be more loving and kind and patient with people who are caught up in gross and heinous sin, like Hosea was toward Gomer, you're missing who you are in the story. 
Hosea represents God in the story and Gomer represents us. We're the messy people. Same thing when people say, look at how Jesus uh, hung out with sinners. And they think the message there is hang out with sinners instead of realizing the message is we are sinners. Well, what do you do if you if you take that principle, I'm the sinner in the story, what do you do if there's two sinners? Well, you're both of them. We can be the prodigal son and we can be the impatient, uh, unforgiving, unkind son. We can be the foolish, impulsive, give it to me now Esau, or we can be the devious, manipulative, unloving Jacob. We're both of these people. And what are we called to do? Well, we're called to have a long-term view. We're called to deal with honesty and integrity with those that we're dealing with. We're called to be patient. Remember, we're going to see what happens again when when we have the blessing being stolen. And we're going to, to some degree, um, step a little further into distinguishing between birthright and blessing uh, when that time comes. But for now, I want you to understand that we're that what's happening here with Jacob is very much like what happened with Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. We can take God's promises, God's good promises that he's going to bring thus and so to pass and grow impatient and decide that we're going to hasten that day. We're going to let God use us to bring that to pass, and we pursue that thing in a sinful way. That's what happened with Hagar and Sarah and and Abraham. God said, we're going to have a son. Look how old we are. We don't have a son yet. It must be you're supposed to to take uh, Hagar as a wife. That didn't work out well, did it? Well, neither is this going to work out well. Jacob's trickery and later on, Rebecca joining him in that trickery. It's not necessary. Our calling is to trust God. Our calling is to let him bring things to pass, to let him work things out. Who knows what would have happened if they hadn't have done these things? Who knows what would have happened if each of them had done the right thing? I'm going to say there would have been less hardship. There would have been less suffering. And the same thing is true in every one of our lives. Here's the thing about God's law. It never, ever, ever gets in the way of a blessing because God's law is ever and always the directions into a blessing. Yes, I've always said every time I've sinned, God and I disagreed. And every single time he was right and I was wrong. Every single time I thought it would be better if I do this thing that God forbids or don't do this thing that God commands. And every single time God said, no, it's better if you do what I say. And he's always right. And I'm always wrong. Don't learn from this account to cut corners, to try to bring God's plan to pass. Learn from this account instead the dangers that come when we do just that and learn to trust the living God. Don't be the Abraham who goes in to Hagar. Let us instead be the Abraham 
who raises up the knife, ready to sacrifice Isaac, believing, well, God's going to have to raise him from the dead because that's what God does. Let's learn to trust him because he's altogether trustworthy.